Hello, I'm Rob Hirschfeld, CEO and co-founder of RackN and your host for the Cloud 2030 podcast. This discussion starts from Emily Friedman's DevOps Days Ukraine presentation about rethinking software development lifecycle or SDLC and how she describes looking at it as a multidimensional cross-functional discipline that actually accounts for uh, six different vectors of illities uh, capabilities uh, that need to be factored in. So a, a much more resilient and robust uh, look at the SDLC and the YouTube uh, of her giving that presentation is in the notes and I suggest you watch that. It'll, it'll help explain some of what we're doing uh, in, the, in the discussion, but it is not required. We had people who didn't watch it uh, in, the, in the presentation, uh, an active part of the discussion. But what we found was that that model um, does not cover all of the things that we've been discussing as, as important things to consider in building, deploying, and making software resilient and reliable, most specifically software build materials or SBOMs. Um, but we covered a lot of ground in taking uh, a short presentation uh, by Emily into a much uh, deeper discussion about some of the implications and ramifications of, of what she presented. I know you'll enjoy the conversation. You know, when when you capture some industry change, how do you foster a community around that in a in a material way? Mm-hmm. So in the old old days, mm-hmm. it was user groups. Mm-hmm. Uh, so remember, uh, uh, even VMware, it's like their VMware conference was all for the users. And then there were, uh, in Unix days, yeah, there was what was going into user local bin and there'd be people, you know, whole conferences on, uh, eventually Unix kind of merged from all the other people's and, and stuff like that. So it, it used to be that you would start with a user group and then it would encompass more stuff because the users group were finding you know, the the typical, right. yeah, That's even right. though it wasn't designed for this, we're doing this with it. So, uh, yeah, with Chef Compass, just chef's, Chef user group uh, meetup or whatever would, yeah, the the old Titles would have been just uh, 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 UG, UG, right. yeah, whatever UG conf. <laughs> well, they, they yeah, they didn't they it. didn't try to become DevOps con from that right exactly. They did not uh, try to co-opt everything in the industry that was similar to what they were doing. Right. Right. But they would have ended up supporting DevOps days. Shows, yes, which is they should exactly. do. But those were those have always felt much more organic to me. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. And that's actually what, in some ways, some of the things that irritate me about Git and the Git kind of, uh, even before Microsoft was there, Git was trying to become. <clears throat> 
the what everyone talked about. <clears throat> so there's like that domination aspect of it that um, always irritated me. So even if you don't use Git, you mm -hmm. call it GitOps. It's like <laughs> no. <laughs> right. Some some of that feels like it's settled down a little bit to me. Uh, but maybe I'm just not in the conversations where people are uh, talking about it at the moment. Um, I hear uh, you. <laughs> I, I wasn't so. Uh, I I wasn't too displeased by by the. The, the the git part in, in GitOps so like uh, the mm. it, it it made sense given the given how ubiquitous git is the, to say like hey let let's reference the most popular tool for this and 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 use that as the baseline um but um yeah some some people take it a little bit more to heart <laughs> yeah that makes sense so do y'all want to pivot over and talk uh on the sdlc piece um i don't know how many people got a chance to listen to emily friedman's uh talk as as preview we can we can tee it back up oh um, yeah i didn't <laughs> that's all right um, i'm on vacation I, ooh, all right Thank you for coming. Um, we we can we can tee it back up um, and and sort of go through um, what what she was saying. I have I have a graphic that she was presenting on on screen. I think Klaus, you were suggest. I thought this was your suggestion for a topic. Yeah, I mean, I, it was almost a year ago. <laughs> it's been a long <laughs> <Yeah>. time coming, <laughs> definitely. Uh, and and I was I was going to suggest like it, it's probably. Uh, worthwhile to review it in like in terms of hindsight like oh, given the the work that has happened in in the, in the past year with regards to um uh software dependencies on s bomb and, and all of that mm. uh, how that impacts uh that uh that presentation. oh i like i like i like that idea um let me. Can I, you mind if I summarize the the presentation a little bit? If I if I can, <laughs> it's yeah, covered please. a lot of ground please. very very quickly. Um, and some of it I I feel like is pretty sort of typical um, baselining for you know the challenges presented by uh, soft you know writing software, supporting software, and um, she talked about DevOps and the idea that what and i think this is the key thing is not people don't can't do everything they have to specialize um and at the same time they also have to own a broader part of the life cycle so one of the key concepts in this let me put together the slide show show the slide that she has so i think it's interesting although challenging at the same time um what what she's got is a is a multi-dimensional radar chart um, which shows um different phases from architecting developing automating deploying and operating software so a sort of a normal 
um, software lifecycle with that, and then showing it much more in a cycle, and then factoring in uh, was it six key um, cross cutting concerns around at every stage. So testability, securability, reliability, observability, flexibility, and scalability. <laughs> and I'm, I'm going super fast. I'm counting on uh, the visual, but um, I, I don't think you know we need to drill in. Maybe we do on any on any one of these topics, uh, or we can just call it out. Um, but I, I do think it is a much healthier way to look at you know building systems not, you know, you're not doing dev and then ops. What you really have is you have concerns about uh, applications across their life cycle. Um, and I like that there's, you know, some things that you, you need to care about throughout, right? Observability, reliability, securability, testability, scalability, flexibility, all of those things are really um, concerns for ongoing production systems. And to Building them at the arc, you know, dealing with them in architecture and development is really important. Um, so back in I, the QA days, yes. we used to call those the illities. And those were the things that most developers ignored because that you it was much more difficult to actually create tests and it took a lot longer to uh to verify those illities, but you put them all together and that gives you resiliency. Makes sense. Yeah. Well, in, in those, in those cases, right. More traditional SDLC who owned that, that work. Was it, I mean, you can't add those things after the fact, this no, is what's they, a little bit weird to me. It's like, it's like we, it, we haven't, you know, we we keep acting like all of a sudden we've changed a whole bunch of stuff. I, I don't think we've taken that out of architects and developers' hands ever. No. So the, the key is is uh most of the illities have to be defined and laid down as um as base documents during the design phase. Okay. And when Agile came in, a lot of people just kind of threw the design phase out because it was all artisanal. It was all small, handcrafted and stuff like that. And this really pissed off the, the QA people. Uh, so <laughs> in lots of ways, it's kind of like the, the chat GPT where there's that base document that the thing's supposed to refer to. The... the um, the uh, avatar essentially goes back to here are the rules. Here are things you need to keep in in place during des, uh, development, uh, design and development. And uh, you, you state what the limits are. It's like how scalable do you have to make sure it is? How how secure does it need to be? How reliable? You know, how, what's the uptime? And once you put into place a measurable uh, goal, measurable requirements, it's requirements based. They're all requirements. Then, then the design has to be based off the requirements and the development has to be based off of the requirements. Usually the design 
The first design spec includes uh, the requirement uh, in each of the areas where you've got them. That's why the docks were so important back in the past. Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. I, what, what I think, or what personally I think uh, Emily here is proposing is not so much to throw that all like throw the baby out with the, with the bathwater, but uh, to um, start reconsidering the the requirement specification not as an initial task, but as a continuous task. Yes, so, that's so beautiful. You, your requirements when you when you start developing an, an application are inevitably going to change, either because this system use changes uh, or because you have a scope change or because new technology comes out or because new vulnerabilities come out so yep. so what what she's trying to or, or what i think she's trying to propose here is the is a way to visualize well at what point the should you be re uh, reviewing your requirements or or at what point um does it become important to do this i'm not sure she quite succeeded with that um i mean i i can i can see what 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 she's trying to do here with, with what she's called the, the the revolution model but um ultimately i i think there is a gap where it becomes difficult to explain this to the stakeholders. And that's that becomes really okay. Yeah, I can see where that's. Uh, I mean, I'm looking at this, and the more you dig into it, it's like, oh yeah, this is like, this is really. So this makes a lot of sense to ops, and it makes a lot of sense to test. And it makes a lot of sense to architects, uh, but uh, part of it is in development and uh, deploying and automating and deploying. It's it's more along the lines of it's not exactly firefighting, but how do you keep your head at this level of abstract abstraction? while you're doing your work. You need to be able to keep coming back to this higher level of abstraction and going back down and, and matching to see if what you're doing matches these uh, this process. Well, not a process, but these these goals, these. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I, and yeah, and the stakeholders are going to sit there and go, no, the, we don't. This this stuff is too fuzzy. Uh, we're not going to put time or money towards some of this stuff. I I I, I personally see this more as a project manager tool than yeah. a developer tool. Like this, <laughs> like this is more of a replacement to a Gantt chart. That than really something that a developer should care about, and it's program and project management as opposed to uh, technical managers would should also be interested and want to do it, but um, 
you need a physical uh, person or team to make sure that these items are being taken into account at the proper points. Mm -hmm. That they don't get forgotten. Yeah. Uh, but again, like uh, as, mm -hmm. as I mentioned before, in, in terms of um, in, in terms of what's changed over the last year, I think this model is more resilient, or at least more um, is is better able to handle uh, requirement changes than. Um, than a standard model, um, because with a standard model, essentially you you go back and visually you you're throwing out um, the effort that you did beforehand with your change. Uh, with this model here, it it becomes more um, more evident. Not so much that you it so it, it becomes more evident that. You did not have a regression in your in your work progress, but that the the scope has changed, and that I, I see as becoming useful in in, in in the upcoming years, particularly with 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 not so not only changes in, in procedure, like with uh, again like. Uh, uh, with attestations that are the tooling coming out with, mm. with software bill of material, but but also with, with policies. Like re recently the, the, the White House uh published a, a new cybersecurity strategy where uh essentially uh vendors are going to have to be accountable for security breaches caused by their tools. So Ooh. Um, what is yeah. what does that actually what does that actually mean? Well, it, it means that if you like, for example, if you are solar winds and your negligence caused your customers to be uh to be breached, you are going to be responsible for their breaches. Like, so you need to have your own ducks in a row. Um, so yes, there's, there's going to be legal implications for for this and like yeah. going down. What, what it means is that you you're def you definitely now uh, can be held responsible for negligence in ignoring uh, security needs. Um, STLC. Yeah. So before it's like. Oops, and you know everybody just cleans up the mess and goes on. And now it's like, oops, now you can be sued big time because <laughs> you didn't bother. I wow, which I think is is reasonable, um, but wow, scary too. Because um, some there's there's negligence, and then there's. And there's carelessness, but um, yeah, that, wow, it, would change, it, would it would change the industry. Yeah, it's going to be some interesting court cases coming out of this. Yeah, because there there will be court cases where the guys actually did try and uh, and just 
not one of the easy ones to find. And also mitigation, you have to demonstrate that you attempt to mitigate it once it is found mm-hmm. if uh, you don't want to get sued. So there's there's both pre and post uh, exploit uh, uh, performance that you have to demonstrate. So does- does that tie back into this and the SDLC? I mean, there's we have security in there, securability, right? Um, but that's that's missing from the SBOM, right? There, I don't. Where where do you put SBOM in this list? Which is actually knowledge of what you've deployed. Like, um, like how does it fit? Maintainability. Which is not actually one of the metrics. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, it's kind of moving that missing that, isn't it? Uh-huh. Uh huh. So this is an incomplete chart. <laughs> I, yeah, it's so- an interesting, interesting piece to put back into. You're right. What's what's missing from an S bomb perspective? It's not there. This is a day zero chart, or or perhaps. Uh, one could argue that maintainability is the um, the superposition of all of these other illities on the chart. I don't. No, I don't. I wouldn't say that though. I think what you're what we're defining with this is something additional in architecting the software. Yeah. Right. We're well. It. it it has bits and pieces of of all these guys, but then again, all these guys have bits and pieces of each other also. So, yeah, there it needs to be in there because there's well, there's a it's a it's a component of complexity and right. How you know if you're and we talk about this a lot. You're building a system that relies on an external library or an external API. Um, that's that maybe that's reliability, but I. No, it's a different ability. It's a different different thing. (laughs) So going all the way back to my first job out of college, we were doing uh, uh, work for uh, uh, to meet various uh, requests for proposals. And the abilities, the the maintainability was definitely separate from reliability and scalability and stuff like that. Uh, So it's and it's especially important in IoT because okay. all these other guys, there's there's nothing in in this chart that works for remote systems for keeping them up and running. And the maintainability is a critical piece if you're IoT or anything that's remote. So it's definitely missing. Also, one of the things that Hmm. that is virtually impossible to put in this chart that was really important for IoT and remote stuff is graceful degradation. It's also important for large systems. You should be able to handle systems coming down without bringing the whole... whole, Oh, goodness, uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, and there's and there's there's upstream and downstream. Um, in a, now, one and one of the things I we we talk about, or you know, is 
in the current models, a lot of these systems that we're talking about are composed of many different APIs working in concert. And so there's startup dependencies, dependency graphing, right? SBOM, actually, Klaus, when you think about SBOM, does that include service dependencies in your SBOM or are you just thinking about the an individual service? Mm. I'm I'm usually thinking about S1 in, in, in terms of libraries and, and packages that get co-deployed or, or, or included in, in a piece of software. But I mean, uh, service dependencies are, they are always an implicit component of system architectures. So maybe mm -hmm. we should start Considering them as part of an, of an SBOM. I mean, if we if we do that, then we're, we're also gonna want to start talking about, I mean, uh, like schema versioning. So it, it, yeah, uh, but, it could be a double. But if I, I mean, the purpose of SBOMs is partially to ensure the there's there's several, and I I, I think it's funny because I think that the SBOM layer on top of this ends up being some really critical software development lifecycle thinking, right? What, what is going into my, into my product? Do I know it's Providence? Do I, do I, you know, can I, can I access it? Can I repeat it? Do I have legal access to it? Is it securely produced? All that makes sense. But I, the benefit of doing that is to be able to have, um, you know, a reliable, system that to build your build your software and if you do have an external dependency that that does me as tracking it matches the same needs as what you want an sbom for yeah and uh, um, hmm. hmm. I, I mean it's th this becomes more explicit when you deal with things like fedramp certifications where you have a well-defined <clears throat> boundary for your workloads and there are rules for um, what can be brought into the boundary uh, what should be trusted um, what kind of ingress and egress should be allowed there um, however it is a very specific subset uh, of applications that are beholden to those rules uh, and particularly with startups um the the prototyping aspect tends to take priority over um <laughs> compliance <laughs> over everything <laughs> i yeah so the, the first to market is Typically, the the golden rule, and um, in, in many cases, uh, dev teams are mm. told, "Well, ignore these yeah. things. Like ignore your securability, ignore your scalability. Let, let's just go get be the first to market, and then we'll worry about that later." Would Would um, that fall apart if companies started to ask for a software bill of materials for the for these? products right for a SaaS product um, no 
Not necessarily. Like you, you can have a completely clean software bill of materials, but if you use the if you don't use the libraries correctly, that's not going to help you. Yeah. So, uh, sorry. If if, but it's a, at least it's a sign of initial hygiene. Mm, no, it just shows. It's just a sign that you uh, collected the information. <laughs> it, it, it's a sign of a certain level of. SDLC maturity, uh, and and let, let, let's be honest, like uh, a, a lot of development tools have, have already have pseudo explicit software build materials, like your like Java applications have the palm file, um, Node.js has the what is it the package.json file. So SLAM already exists to, to some degree. The, the problem is that there that no one treats these SBOMs as sacred. Like yeah, it's really just a, a list of packages that that will that will ensure that my build runs properly. Yeah. Right. It doesn't get it doesn't get taken in the context of security. So like Uh, okay, I I have the these versions. Uh I I update them whenever there is a vulnerability listed with a with existing one. Um do I check whether the the newer ones are legitimate or, or have been uh intercepted? In many cases, the answer is going to be no. I, uh, and it's. Go I was just going to do a quick interrupt, Rob. There, there are two attendees yeah. that at least oh. one, if not both Sorry. of them, are probably chomping at the bit to actually say something. <laughs> Mar- Martez is coming in. Yeah, thank you for telling me. With me, when I'm sharing a screen, it's harder for me to watch that. Yep. And Diana's Sorry. Diana's been promoted, but choosing not to not to ch- come in. So. Ah. Uh, okay. Sorry to interrupt. Welcome. No, no, I I appreciate that because I uh, it's I can't see the same. I I, I seriously lose view. I'm not apologizing to you, Rob. I'm apologizing to Klaus. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It was a welcome interruption. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I, I see what you're saying though about. But how do we how do we know? I mean, I, what Emily's talking about here is great for internal, and and I I still think overwhelming from a, like an internal like it's helpful to be like oh we should be factoring all these things in as we build software. So there's a level of discipline um, that would you know I, I would be wow this is a really mature group in in building software to to have this type of interaction or scorecard. But we we don't really know, and that was one of the, the questions I posted in regards to even the the SaaS. Even if you do the, the software yeah. for the materials for SaaS, how do I verify that? Are you going to let me run some sort of tool in your your SaaS backend environment to to validate you're actually running the versions that you say you're running, or you know, that detail? <laughs> um, but then it also gets into the "do I really care" conversation, which is what oftentimes comes up even with cloud computing and SaaS. Do I really care how the the vendor or the provider does what they do? 
Do I really want to see about the, the sausage that's being made? And then oftentimes it leads directly to the, well, even if you could do it yourself, they've got 500 or a thousand engineers dedicated to security. So their stuff's always going to be more secure than your stuff will ever be. And, and what, I, what am I going to find to that, that those hundreds of engineers haven't found yet? Um, but yeah, that, I mean, that, that is a good point. And, and I mean, it ultimately boils down to delegation of trust. At some point, you, you have to trust someone else to, to do the work that they claim they do. Uh, I mean, otherwise, you're you're developing just from scratch in 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 your own bubble, and yes, like you you will have full control over it, uh, but uh, then we we end up having the same argument as like closed source versus open source, where like it, if if no one lo- looks at what what you produce because you're in your own bubble, uh, is it really more secure? Or is it just that it's it's hitting behind a curtain? And um, in, yeah, I mean mm-hmm. the the vendors have have already started working towards uh, what they can do to establish trust. Like Google has their uh, I forgot what it's called, like something like a shared open source. Uh, I believe, where they rehost certain um, popular libraries. Uh, they say, like, um, where they basically put their stamp of approval, saying, like, this has passed these scanning requirements. Um, and we'll, we'll probably start seeing more like that coming out. Uh, it's... Uh, it is, however, a constantly moving target. So right. we'll, we'll see how it uh, how it behaves a couple of years down the line. Do you think? Uh, I mean, this is the beauty of SaaS is that you're you're not supposed to have to care. You can just assume that people are doing a good job. Or could we be entering a time when? Discipline behind a SaaS is important and not just the open source piece. Well, I mean, we got some of that with the uh, things like the the SOX compliance and FedRAMP. And there are some of those rigors that there is an insurance that there's some due diligence being done on the back end. Or at least it's Hmm. someone someone assuming responsibility for their claims. Like, FedRAMP and SOX at least are a little bit more strict on this. But on the hand, with, let's say, PCI DSS, uh, at least year one is like, it's just a questionnaire. Like, are you doing this? Are you doing this? Are you doing this? There's no, there's no verification. And uh, um, at least not until year two. So, um I, yeah, it, it's. I, I'm not claiming that it's 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 an easy thing to solve, but so, I I think that we're gonna see much tighter scrutiny over the process. Yeah, the and this is where the government might step in and say, uh, you need third party certification of certain security stuff or something like that, or um, hmm. or a certification agency grows up. Although 
as we've seen, some certification <laughs> stuff is just totally bogus, but they want it anyway. <laughs> so the challenge becomes, and I think that in, in a way that almost goes back to the one of the conversations from previous week of does would it almost need to be the case of as a vendor, you have to use a certain technology stack to simplify that vetting and auditing process from a third party standpoint, oftentimes that becomes the challenge of the, the nuance of 10 vendors are using 10 different technology stacks and the auditors and the, the security professionals are trying to normalize it across all those 10 different things. And it oftentimes never really does a, a good job of going really deep from a security standpoint. Yeah. I I mean, I, the, the idea that I've, somebody would do an audit for us um which I mean, we get we get we get security audits all the time but it's it's not it's definitely i mean that's just security that's not even on the, any of these other vectors i'm um, not even sure how you how you would so in some ways this is kind of the software maturity model or ISO was it 2901 or whatever or 9201 or nine, whatever. But so there there have been attempts in the past. Uh software security uh uh maturity model and uh ISO are examples. And they don't really seem to have worked all that well, but ISO is I believe still used in Europe and it's still used in manufacturing world. I think this is where it would be great if we had, um, uh, Joanne in. Yeah. Yeah. Well, no, I mean, the, typically yeah. it's, it's general guidance, even with like a PCI and some of the others, but just throwing it out. Does it, and it, very unlikely to ever happen just due to capitalism and the, the way things work. But almost in essence, it would almost have to be like, you have to use this specific stack of technologies so that we can ensure almost in from a, in essence, the kind of things that vendors do from a turnkey solution standpoint, but in essence to be able to vet and say, you know what, it should be able to pass these certain automated checks and the security should be at this level to be able to provide a, a greater level of assurance. Because otherwise, when you get back to 15, 20 different companies get to pick whatever technologies they want, the auditors may or may not have a clue about that technology or the nuance of that specific technology. And, and that is a, a problem already with, with, let's say, FedRAMP or, or whatever certification where you you may be adopting a new technology like for example Kubernetes or um or something like that and the the auditors are still requiring you to run an agent on the nodes uh um where it just doesn't make sense like you're not really controlling the nodes if you're using a uh a, a pass or or sas like gke or eks or aks um in many cases like if you were have to if you if you were forced to run those agents on your on your nodes you would have to use your own base os as opposed to the the vendor provided one which lowers your security posture as a whole so you need 
you need to make a big distinction between actual security rules that increase or strengthen your posture versus just plain out security theater. Well, and you you also have the issue where outside of security, it's limiting technology stacks, limits resiliency. When everybody's on the same stack, everything's much more fragile. You take out, you find find the error in one place and the whole world falls apart. Whereas if there, there are multiple different technology stacks, you have a much more resilient environment. Yeah, like those uh, frequent JBoss and, uh, mm. and, and and other vulnerabilities where, like, yep, suddenly uh, twenty different uh, governments are are are, are scrambling because uh, their uh, their default stack is was wonderful. Independent. Yep. Yep. So the trade offs all all around, and that's the key: is how to actually weight the trade-offs when you're making your decisions. Yeah. It's, uh, and it's, particularly like it, it like hmm. known uh known dangers versus unknown dangers. <laughs> no, yep. and, and, and it's ultimately uh the the, the same question uh, that 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 DevOps has been asking like do do you do slow big patches or or do you do f- Fast, frequent updates. Ask Twitter I, that question. <laughs> goodness, that, but that that gives that makes me. Ask, there's another question in this that is interesting to me about reproducibility of um, of time snapshots and things like that. Because, like, part of the challenge on the Java libraries, that this is a real. I mean, it's a serious dilemma for us. Uh, because you know we we're software, so we have customers deploying you know, you know many many versions, and some of them go back beyond our support windows, but we still try to support them. And so you have the oh wait, I have to go back. You know this Java library is messed up. I have to go back and then put it into the code base, rebuild the code base, update the SBOM, whatever. And sometimes you you, you can't actually rebuild. Um, especially for some languages, you you can't access old libraries to to do that type of rebuild and create that system, which means that you can only patch by changing the things that you're building, which is then going to potentially break things or lose functionality. Um, there's a there's a durability question in this or maintainability. The S bombs I think are are critical here. Yeah, and that that's also why large companies like VMware and whatnot, when they use a library, they stick it in their uh, their source control because it's got to be there until the last customer they support with that library goes away. Oh, and the, but then they if that library suddenly they realize had licensing issues or something like that, it's I mean they might yeah, not be able to reproduce a build. Well, that's that's why they they hire people to actually be build specialists. But yes, yeah, yes. yeah. I, I, it'd be interesting. I, I wonder if Emily would look, think about this conversation and say that this is a, it is a different layer of actually what goes into building the software and and composing the artifacts outside of 
like actually building the application. But like the architecture and development. I don't think so anymore though. I think I think things have changed a little bit. Let's see if there's other other screens in this. This was the one I thought was the most uh potent from that perspective. She I did spend a little bit yeah. of time um I, I think around to the like the 15 minute mark or so uh explaining how to navigate the the model um mm -hmm. that there were some some paths drawn or, or maybe it's later on again it's, it's been a while since I, i've seen this yeah uh, but it could um, have been it could have been in the q a too and then and then she talked about an incident there's a whole there's a whole nother our <laughs> conversation about incident severity and um you know, dealing with, um, you know, when things break. The thing, the her point there was, um, this is an ongoing model, so you have to assume that part of the the life cycle is is dealing with stuff that broke inside of the product and making that routine. Um, but then that comes back to build test patch process some of the stuff we've been talking about are places that system breaks not from user um, mistakes or system mistakes but um, external uh, dependency changes or vulnerabilities mm -hmm. which in in today's world is a is actually a, a very real a real problem I'm I'm, ser I'm searching for my 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 takeaway in you know SDLC you know definitely circular not linear um you know, it's um but, I mean, it, it, yeah. it's not even not even circular because um I mean like, like this this graph doesn't really show it but I mean, it, it, it's not like you navigate in 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 nice mm. clean circles or spirals. It's right. like okay, you, for, for, you you may be like uh, staying on one of your illities and dropping closer to the center, uh, and and then jump to an an illity two over, and and then like yes. Well, the, shift, you're, shift to me, there's circle. You're you're yeah, describing a graph an might iterative. be a better interpretation. Well, there's an iterative time component with this with this graph is what you're saying like i'm i'm in phase you know my my ideation phase or my prototyping phase and right my scale my scalability vectors might be all at zero at the moment um right it's and and you have to understand you know it's almost like a t equals whatever in this graph and then you're going to start stacking up iterations as you go um, thing I like about this is you could actually say we have to reach certain levels for um, at certain gateways. Um, yeah. I, I think what 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 the model is most uh, most sorely missing is guidance in how to navigate it. Like uh, one thing that's not clear is is this a reactive model that's supposed to show you 
what you've done so far and, and how you moved? Or is it something that, that would help you guide your next move? Uh, and if so, how do you interpret it? Like, it is, like, it is my automation uh, securability uh, gauge. Like, when it's full, doesn't mean that I've met a goal or, or doesn't mean that it, it needs to be prioritized. Uh, and if so, like, okay, let, let, let's say that, that if it's full, it, it, it means that it's, uh, that, that the, the goals have been met. Well, do I focus then on components that are less full? Do I uh, do a burst effort to finish completing one of the components that is nearly done? There's, there's a lot of procedural um, guides missing, I, I think. Uh, and and I, I, to, to a sense, share, I share that. Yeah. Yeah. To a sense, Emily does acknowledge that this, that this is not meant to be a complete model. <laughs> like well, it, it's, yeah. I, I think that it's useful to think of the software development lifecycle like this. I think it's a very good frame framework i think it would be a whole nother thing to score yourself along these lines like like actually build this chart from a for, on a, on a team basis cuz i'm not even sure what automating testability means test automation probably ci what about testing your automation like how is that I guess that's reliability for the automating phase? Reproducibility. Yeah. So like and, and this is one of the things with with, with GitOps. Like uh, I I should be able to at, at least with ephemeral workloads, I, I should be able to completely destroy my stack uh and then recreate it and then I test my automation in terms of uh, provisioning. Um, Chaos Monkey is another one. Like test the test the automated processes that are in place to um, to reconcile your desired state to uh, and your actual state. So there's a another one in there that a lot of people forget uh, because it it really doesn't the the testing automation of testing is a big one and and that is big on flexibility a lot of tests are not designed in such a way they're they're fragile they're designed to work with the system as is and only as is so if something changes as we know everything does the test becomes useless and has to be modified or totally recreated to test the same functionality that no longer be, uh, has the same underlying stack or whatever. So uh, testing the test automation, the testing the, the automated test is also critical for and needed for with flexibility, scalability, et cetera. And there's never, ever time to, to do that. Nobody ever uh, com considers that an issue. 
I mean, DevOps does consider that an issue. Uh, but yeah. Uh, yeah. And uh, I mean, that that's part of the whole mantra of continuous integration, right? That you, your, your test should be reproducible, should be to a degree flexible. Um, typically, the pushback on the flexibility comes from the developers where they're like, well, if I make my test flexible, uh, how can I reproduce the um, the uh, the circumstances that caused a test to fail? Which is a valid question. Yeah, um, but it it does not need to impact flexibility. It just needs to impact the predictability of the test. Exactly, and and so there there needs to be. Uh, in a lot of instances, there needs to be more thought put into the test so that the tests aren't essentially don't hardwire the tests. And a lot of tests are hardwired. And like you said, CICD actually helps a lot because it's more incremental and people actually see these errors. Whereas if there's a large feature push or something like that, often the first round of automated tests are fragile. So it's a it's a maturity thing too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the, the the first round of, of of tests is supposed to be fragile. They're, they're your regression. Well, tests. they're 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 fragile <laughs> to changes other, changes in other parts of the code other than what <laughs> you're actually testing. <laughs> oh yeah. yeah. Well, and we we still have issues with flakes and things like that from a, a resilience yeah. perspective. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's it is a common issue with uh with developers that they they want to jump straight into integration testing and test the the whole ecosystem as opposed to just do unit testing and they'll say like well what are you actually testing are you testing your application or the interaction of your application with a third-party software and yeah there's different opinions on that but uh yeah, I, I I'm not saying that that some people are wrong, but they're wrong. <laughs> oh my goodness, this, this is so it's so hard to make to move the needle here. Is the part of the challenge? Cool, Klaus. I'm glad you put this on the the schedule. The the talk was good, although I I think after the discussion, I'm a little bit less. <laughs> I'm feeling more overwhelmed about it than I was when. <laughs> It seems so easy when she was presenting it. Yeah. So a good chunk of the issue is everyone, anyone presenting SDLC, it's, it becomes extremely dependent on the organization. So it's in very, very many ways, it's an organic uh, function where for some organizations, certain parts are more important for others, other parts are, and SDLC can't be hard hardened to to be uh, a particular rule, just like you can't say all Kubernetes uh, installations must look like this. It's organic. And, um, um, and and Kubernetes by itself for any tool is not going to get you 
maturity on these on these vectors. Exactly. And, it might, it might and there's you. there's no way to get maturity on this except with with socio socio aspects being considered. And you can't it you can't put those on a piece of paper. <laughs> yeah. That makes a lot of ton of sense. Cool. All right. I should stop sharing. Thank you all. I, this this was really fascinating. I love how we can we can take even a small uh, short presentation and and dig dig into a whole other dimension. So that was cool. Cool. All right, all right everybody. Thanks. Time. I'll talk Cheers. to you soon. Thanks. Bye. Bye bye. Wow. It's really fascinating how we can take a relatively short part of a presentation and start pulling back the covers on the ramifications and implications of what is going on in becoming proficient at something like next generation software development process and controls. Um, I hope this got you thinking and excited. Um, as always, these conversations are open uh, their discussion format, and we would love to have you come in and join us. Uh, visit, uh, check out the agenda at the 2030.cloud. Uh, come in, ask your questions, be part of the conversation, or just lurk in the background. Um, that is perfectly fine, too. We love having you be part of these conversations, even if it's just listening to the podcast uh, and uh, being part of it that way, too. Thanks, and I will see you there. Thank you for listening to the Cloud 2030 podcast. It is sponsored by RackN, where we are really working to build a community of people who are using and thinking about infrastructure differently, because that's what RackN does. We write software that helps put uh, operators back in control of distributed infrastructure, really thinking about how things should be run and building software that makes that possible. If this is interesting to you, uh, please try out the software. We would love to get your opinion and, and, and hear how you think this could transform infrastructure more broadly. Or just keep enjoying the podcast and coming to the uh, discussions and you know laying out your thoughts and how you see the future unfolding. It's all part of building a better infrastructure operations community. Thank you.